Um, I said yesterday afternoon that I would find a quote that uh, refers to becoming like a child in response to your question. This is from a a Japanese uh, Zen teacher called Takasui, 17th century. I don't know anything more about him. Uh, When he uses the word doubt, that's the um, literal translation of the term that we uh, render as questioning or perplexity. You must doubt deeply, again and again, asking yourself what the subject of hearing could be. Uh, This is the particular uh, koan that he asks, what is it that hears the Buddha's name? Pay no attention to the various illusory thoughts and ideas that might occur to you. Only doubt more and more deeply, gathering together in yourself all the strength that is in you, without aiming at anything or expecting anything in advance without intending to be enlightened and without even intending not to intend to be enlightened. (laughs) Become like a child in your own breast. It's a beautiful passage. And um, again, obviously, it uh, emphasizes the rather radical quality of this questioning. Um, It's trying to tap into this, I suppose we might call it, this primary or primal uh, sense of astonishment that there is anything at all. And to take that astonishment um, as the Uh, as the focus of your practice. So that instead of giving in to the idea that you're doing this practice in order that you can get some particular result, you actually turn, as Martin said yesterday, you turn the attention back onto the questioning itself, onto the astonishment itself. And you don't allow any kind of um, anticipation or expectation or, or theory about Buddhism or enlightenment or anything to get in the way. And I think this is very um, close, in fact, to the legend um, of the Buddha when he goes outside the palace walls and he encounters... Uh, a sick person, an aging person, a corpse, and on each occasion becomes um, startled almost by the recognition that this is his fate as a human being, as a sentient creature, to get sick, to grow old, and to die. And it seems to me that that is very similar to the sort of perplexity or questioning or doubt that we find here in Zen. 
namely to come right back to the, the core questions of your existence as the very source of, um, of your own practice. And in fact, I think the enlightenment or the awakening that we've been speaking about um, of the Buddha is only actually intelligible as a resolution or a response um, to that primary questioning. So that when the Buddha gives his first discourse, as we've been um, as we've been uh, we were looking at yesterday and the day before, it's hardly surprising that he starts with his first point, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha. That that's where we begin. And again, he's not presenting um, this as a truth. Let's try to get, get rid of that idea. But rather as um, something that we are challenged constantly to know. As he says, dukkha parinya, fully know dukkha. Fully know birth, sickness, aging, death. And I would argue that to fully know these things means not to gain some sort of uh, expertise or detailed information about such things but to fully know them in the sense that um, that uh, in the sense of fully opening up to your own condition as a living being and so when for example we meditate on the breath it's not just that the breath is a useful object to keep our mind more concentrated but also to fully know the breath, which is part of the body, which is part of the aggregates, is to fully know birth, sickness, aging and death. If you think about it, when you are born, um, the first sign of life is the drawing of breath. And death is exhaling but not breathing in again. And that's our condition, that our whole life hinges on our breath. So even when you're doing what is supposedly a simple preliminary basic practice of anapanasati, mindfulness of breath, you're actually practicing fully knowing dukkha, There's a sequence of discourses in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha, called the Anapana Sangyutta, the the connected discourses on the breath. And there's one passage where a monk um, asks the Buddha, um, well, what meditation did you do during the last three-month retreat? And the Buddha replies, I practiced mindfulness of the breath. Now, I remember reading that for the first time. I was a little bit surprised. I thought, mm, I thought the Buddha might have 
you know, done something a little bit more profound. <laughs> but no, he comes back to what actually is the basic practice. You know, mindfulness of the breath. So, if we think of this as a, uh, a practice of the first noble truth, then to, to fully know the breath, to fully know the body, means, in the terms of fully, to allow the breath and the body and everything to become a question for you, rather than something you think you understand. The problem with our our intelligent, conceptual sense of ourselves and the world is that by knowing things, by labeling things, we have the um, illusion that we somehow have got them sorted out. We know what it is. And that actually serves as a sort of a, um, a hindrance, really, to being completely open to what in fact is implied in taking the next breath and breathing in and breathing out. So for me, the practice of what is this is the practice of the first noble truth. Sorry, the first point that the Buddha mentioned. (laughs) Can't get out of this habit. And just to summarize um, what we looked at yesterday, which I hope was not too technical, um, I think it all boils down, these four points, to, um, uh, to what I call ELSA. <laughs> E-L-S-A. ELSA. It's an acronym. Embrace, let go, stop, act. The, the first uh, point is to embrace dukkha, embrace the situation that is at hand, whatever that is. Whether it's sitting here listening to a talk, whether it's asking a koan, whether it's washing the dishes whether it's um, uh, you know, writing an email. Uh, embrace that situation. Fully know that situation. And at the same time, let go of the habitual reactivity that might come up. What arises, as the Buddha says, samudayo. What comes up? What happens? In other words, your immediate reactive response, which very often is a distancing from the situation, whether it's in simple terms like, I don't like this, or I like this. Trying not to get caught up in the habit patterns that all situations seem to provoke. If it's, I don't like this, or I like this, it's, oh, this is boring. Uh, I wish this were over. In other words, our experience of the situation, instead of being one in which we're embracing it, is one in which we're resisting it or we're indulging it at some level. 
And so the, the pra- practice of awareness, the practice of mindfulness, uh, is the practice of being totally in that situation and being aware, of course, of what arises as your reaction to it and embracing that as well. Because I think as someone pointed out, craving and attachment and these things, these are also dukkha. These are also uh, part of the fabric of our experience. And rather than letting ourselves somehow get carried away by that reactivity, we expand our mindfulness that little bit further to include it. So it's not, and again, the, the danger here is we think that, you know, craving or hatred or attachment or desire, that these things are somehow to be gotten rid of. They're not. They're just part of life. It's what goes on. It's what happens. And if we get into an aversive relationship with that, trying to excise some part of our experience in order to keep some other part, we've missed the point that whatever occurs is to be embraced, is to be somehow included, not um, so much as an end in itself, but in order to allow us to get to a place where we let go and stop. So letting go of craving, as the text literally says, um, does not mean to, uh, to delete it, to suppress it, um, to uh, reject it, but simply to say, yes, that is also part of what's going on. But I can be with that in another way. I can let it arise and possibly let, observe it pass away or observe it not pass away. It doesn't really matter. In, in, uh, in Dzogchen, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice, they have this idea that the, um, the kilesa, the, let's say, the reactivity is uh, rangdrolwa, is the Tibetan word. It means self-liberating. If you just let things alone, they will follow out their own course. They will play out their impermanence. They will just come and they will go. We don't have to get involved in getting rid of them or preserving them. So what we're doing really with this uh, embracing, letting go, uh, stopping, is that we're, in a sense, uh, expanding a certain spaciousness within ourselves that is... um, Endlessly inclusive, so that we can begin to find another uh, perspective uh, from which to lead our lives. And this is then the uh, perspective that the Buddha describes as the as the as the noble eightfold path. And so the experience of, of stopping which is the third truth, uh, literally the stopping of what arises, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that what arises is not happening anymore. 
it could just as well mean that when these habits and these patterns and these fears and these neurotic thoughts arise, that we have stopped in the midst of them, that we can be still and present even in the midst of all kinds of turmoil and upheaval uh, that is going on. And that's where we can then begin to act from. So embrace, let go, stop, and then act. One of the things that um, puzzled me for many, many years is why did the Buddha present these four points or these four noble truths in that particular sequence? And again, if we look at the classical orthodox model, you have suffering, then the origin of suffering, then the cessation of suffering, and then the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And that always struck me as strange. Why do you start with an effect, dukkha, then you go back to the cause of that effect, craving, then you proceed to another effect, nirvana, and then you go back in the fourth point to the cause of that effect, the path that leads to it. It's very clumsy. It goes, if, it goes basically effect, cause, effect, cause. And it's only when you start to notice that these four points are actually four tasks rather than four truths that describe the nature of reality, which is almost inevitable when you start thinking in terms of truth. The truth of the world, of life, is that it's suffering. And the cause of that suffering is because of craving. And there's a possibility that that suffering can stop if you practice the Eightfold Path that leads to the cessation of craving, and then you won't get born no more. You'll become an arhant. Uh, that seems to me one step removed from the immediacy of uh, the four tasks that are involved in this process. Once you think of these four points as four tasks, you can see how the first task leads to the second, the second leads to the third, and the third leads to the fourth, which, other than anything else, is a much more economical way of understanding what's going on. It also um, fits far better uh, in terms of uh, the four truths being a, an expression of conditioned arising, which I think they are. I think these four points are, as I said yesterday, uh, tran- a translation of a principle when this is that arises into a practice. So in other words, it would run Fully, when there is a full knowing of dukkha, then 
the letting go of craving arises. When there is a letting go of craving or grasping, then the stopping of craving or grasping arises. And when the stopping of craving arises, then the path, the eightfold path, arises. So in that sense, you have um, a sequence that um, is basically a path. You don't have to go through this effect, then back to the cause, this effect, then back to the cause, but you have a sequence, you have a movement um, which leads you not to Nibbāna, but to the path itself. In other words, the fourth truth is the fourth truth because that's the end of the sequence. But the important point is the path, not Nibbāna. And just as we saw how dukkha is, in a way, what causes uh, grasping, grasping being our reactivity to dukkha, in the same way the stopping of grasping is what enables, or if you like, causes the entry into the path, which is actually a complete inversion of the orthodox model which says that dukkha is the craving, the second truth, causes the first truth, and the path causes the fourth truth, causes nibbana. So I realize this is somewhat unorthodox, but frankly, it makes a lot more sense. (laughs) And another thing um, is that it mirrors the parable of the city. I pointed out, I think, yesterday, that the the first sermon breaks down into three sequences. It starts with um, the two, the middle way awakened by the Tathagata does not lead to these two dead ends. That's how the Buddha starts. He starts with the Eightfold Path. That's the first sequence. Second sequence, he enumerates the four points. Dukkha, what arises, the cessation, and path. He just enumerates those four points. That's the second sequence. And the third sequence is that he explains how each of these points is to be acted upon in a particular way Dukkha is to be fully known, craving is to be let go of, cessation is to be experienced, and the path is to be cultivated. In other words, a task is recognized, performed, and accomplished in each case. That's the third sequence. So you have the path, first sequence, the four points, second sequence, and the accomplishment of a task with regard to each point is the third sequence. Now, I think that is then presented uh, symbolically in the parable of the city, which, 
you'll remember, starts by the man going into the forest and finding a path. And the Buddha actually says in the explanation, this is the Eightfold Path. So it too begins with the path. Then the person comes to the ruins of the ancient city and the Buddha explains that this ancient city is on the one hand the four points, uh, dukkha, the arising, the cessation, the path, as well as the links of dependent origination or conditioned arising. So it actually confirms the other point I was making, that the four truths are a way of putting into practice the principle of conditioned arising. Okay, so that's the second part of the parable. The path leads to the city, which is the four truths. And the third part of the parable is that the man goes out of the forest back to the king or the minister and says, let's rebuild this city. In other words, let's do something about these four truths and this dependent arising. Let's act upon it. And so the king and the royal minister rebuild the city and then it once more becomes flourishing and prosperous and so forth. So you have exactly the same structure in the first discourse as in the parable of the city. And I find that to be rather a confirmation that what we're involved in here um, is um, really very much um, a process that in a way does not have an end point. Um, and again, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I think this is rather important. The, the, the Eightfold Path leads to the Four Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Truths, the fourth of which is the path that leads to the Four Truths. And remember again that the path does not just mean becoming good at meditation, but it means um, living a, a life that embraces the whole of your humanity. The way you see things, think about them, speak, act, work, everything is involved in this process. And what I want to look at today is, an, is a continuation um, of that same point. Um, and that is what is called stream entry. Now, I suspect many of you, if you've been involved in uh, Vipassana meditation or um, certainly Theravada Buddhism, will be quite familiar with this word, stream entry. But what is the stream that you enter? What does that mean? What is that a symbol for? So I'll read out a text here. This is from the Sangyuta Nikaya. Again, Sariputta, the Buddha says, Sariputta is the Buddha's most prominent disciple in terms of learning and intelligence. Sariputta, we say the stream, the stream. Now what, Sariputta, is the stream? And Sariputta replies, the noble eightfold path is the stream. That is, right vision, thought, etc., etc., 
Sariputta, we say, a stream enterer, a stream enterer, sotapanna. What Sariputta is a stream enterer? And Sariputta replies, one who possesses this eightfold path is called a stream enterer. So stream entry, therefore, um, is a way of talking about the movement from the third to the fourth point. That it's in the stopping or the letting go of this uh, reactivity, grasping, craving, etc., that the possibility opens up for living life from another perspective, which is the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path becomes basically the goal. The path is, in this sense, the goal. The the, the way is what matters. And this way is compared to a stream. Now again, I don't think this metaphor is chosen just arbitrarily. But just think for a moment about your experience of streams Streams of water obviously come to mind. A stream is, is something that is in uninhibited flow, in movement. It's very much an image for, um, uh, for life. It's water, that which gives life. So entering the stream um, is in contrast to Um, being stuck, uh, being uh, somehow blocked in one's life. Whereas craving or grasping is the very opposite of that. The second point, craving, indulging in this and that, craving stimulation, etc., is a metaphor of um, stasis, of stuckness. So that when we find ourselves in a life situation, which is loosely called dukkha, what usually happens or arises is a reaction, whether it's a mental, a physical, or a vocal reaction, that kind of freezes us. I don't like that. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. Let's get more of it. Or... This is really boring. Uh, Those are the three classical reactions. Of course, we could extend it almost infinitely. But those three classical reactions have in common that you are then, as it were, locked into a particular perception and picture and feeling about the situation. It's a stuckness. So when the Buddha says that this grasping is to be let go of he's basically pointing to how we don't have to react that way we don't have to behave like that we can instead see that arising when it arises but not get entangled in it not get 
identified with it, not get sort of sucked into its vortex in such a way that we basically become um, trapped into a, into a cyclical uh, pattern of reactivity. So the real problem with, with, with grasping, with tanha, with craving, is not that it causes suffering, although it obviously does. That's, that, that's not to be disputed. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that it prevents us from flowing. It prevents us from entering the stream. That's where it is problematic. Now all of this again goes back to this mythology around uh, Buddha and Mara. Mara, remember, is this um, uh, antaka, that which imposes limits. It's the limit condition. It's a metaphor for death. In other words, a situation in which we are completely immobilized and stuck. We're frozen. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Dante's uh, Inferno, the first part of the um, Divine Comedy. But when Dante, in the company of the poet Virgil, descends through the circles of hell, and he gets to the last circle of hell, what he discovers is a vast uh, plain of ice with a chill wind blowing towards him. And Virgil encourages him to, uh, to, to, to go towards the source of that cold wind. And as he and Virgil are walking across the ice, Dante looks down into the ice and he sees, frozen in the ice, uh, denizens of hell, people, frozen. And they get to the middle of this plain, and there they find Satan. And Satan is sunk into the ice up to his chest, and he's flapping his, his demonic wings, which are, of course, a parody of the angel's wings, the fallen angel. Uh, and it's, all it's doing is blowing this cold, chill draft around. But what's, what's so powerful about that image is that, again, um, it is an image of complete stuckness. We often think of the devil as somehow demonic and tricksterish and, and active and so on. But actually, when you get to the bottom circle of hell, in Dante's vision, you find an image of complete stasis, of no warmth, no light, just stuckness. And that, of course, I think is tapping into a similar archetype as the Buddhists tapped into with the idea of Mara. One of the metaphors for Mara, one of the uh, images of Mara is uh, Namuchi. Namuchi, sometimes the Buddha calls Mara Namuchi. Now Namuchi is a, a god from the Vedic 
um, mythology. Uh, Namuchi is the uh, is this demon who who prevents uh, the monsoon from falling, the rain from falling. Very very similar to Dante's Satan in the ice. Ice is not is non flowing water. Namuchi. Uh, holds back the monsoon. And so Indra, the king of the gods, has to strike Namuchi, and then Namuchi releases the water. And of course the water, the monsoon in India, is what allows life to, uh, to go on. It's vital to the survival of the community, the rural community. And so I think if we extend if, if, we, if, if we follow through these metaphors, <coughs> all of which are water metaphors, we then find um, this fourth uh, point, this eightfold path, is compared to a stream. It's water in flow. But it's also water that's not like a sort of tsunami, just a great flood. It's a stream is water within the confines of, a, uh, of two banks. It's channeled, it's focused, it's, it, it's concentrated. And this, I feel, is really a metaphor for um, a life that is in flow, that is concentrated, and that is uh, moving uh, effortlessly um, forward. So the four points, or the four truths, if you wish, uh, are culminating in a sense of uninhibited flow. Um, and again, we can think of this in many different ways. The, as I think I mentioned already, when you, when you say to yourself after a 45-minute sit, that was a good one. I don't know whether... You experience this, but some, some, sometimes you, you feel you, you, you do a session of meditation, your knees hurt, your back hurts, your mind hurts, <laughs> nothing much goes on, you feel as though you're wasting your time, you, 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 you resist to, to, to keep looking at your watch, you wonder if the person at the front's forgotten to hit the bell. <laughs> it's an absolute nightmare. And then finally the bell goes and you go, whew, finalement, at last. Now I can do something interesting, like have a cup of tea or something. <laughs> but then there are other times when it's the complete opposite. The time just whizzes by, you feel completely comfortable in your body, and you feel as though you're somehow in a flow. Uh, you don't feel as though you're just stuck still at all, even though you may be very focused and very quiet, uh, very still. That's not a passive stillness at all. But it's, it's a movement. You feel as though the energies of your life are somehow released. And the same is true not just in meditation, but let's say in work, or in speech, or in action, that you know, let's say, for example, you work as a, a counselor or a therapist. 
you have times when you're with a client or a patient and you just can't connect, that you're terribly self-conscious, you find yourself just repeating things that you've read that are in the textbooks that you're supposed to do, but you're not really engaging with the situation. And at other times, it's the opposite. At other times, the person comes into the room, um, you're able to embrace that person's condition, to let go of your own preconceptions and views and opinions, and you enter into a flow. You find yourself saying things, you find that your body language is somehow communicating in a way in which is almost effortless. And there's once again this sense of flow, this sense of, of, of unimpeded movement. And it's very strange. It's, it's, it's very difficult um, to, uh, to, to know beforehand whether it's coming to a sitting or whether it's meeting a client or a friend or performing a task, how you're going to be when the time comes. You might have had a wonderful sitting in the morning at, from 11.45 to 12.30 mm-hmm. to the point where, where you're even enthusiastic about coming back at 2.30. And when you get back here at 2.30, it's totally dead and flat. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. It's very hard to foresee what's going to go on. So in some ways, I think we have to be open to that reality and simply come back to these these primary tasks. Okay, embrace the situation. Notice the the, the habit patterns that come up. Um, Try to find some independence or freedom from them not identifying with them, not getting caught up in them, in such a way that you open up at least the possibility for a space in which that flow can begin to happen. So uh, a str- uh, a st- the, the, the stream is the path itself, and the stream-enterer is the one and the text says literally, who possesses the path. Um, what does it mean by possesses? That sounds a little odd. I've, I've, this is a passage I haven't yet gone back and checked with the Pali. But I think what it must mean is, um, so if you possess something, it has become your own. Like this is my collection of texts. I possess this, it is my own and likewise, um, when, when one's really entered this stream, it's become your own life. It's not something that you self-consciously think you should do. I mean, sometimes that's, again, another tension that we experience. Um, I should, I, you know, I, if you think of yourself as, let's say, a Buddhist, then you're going to be conditioned by a certain set of shoulds and oughts. Because I'm a Buddhist, therefore I should be mindful. I should be compassionate. 
I should be detached. And, we pro- and if you've probably had the experience also that when you don't exhibit those qualities, then your friends or your wife, in my case, <laughs> will then begin to criticize me for not being mindful and not being detached and not being a good Buddhist, as it were. <laughs> so in other words, there's a, you, you take on board a certain set of values that you seek to live up to and often you fail. But on the other hand, as with a so-called good meditation session, there are moments in life, and hopefully more and more of them, where you feel entirely um, at home, uh, entirely attuned to um, this way of being. It's, you don't even have to be terribly conscious of it. It becomes more and more second nature, more and more natural. And that's, in a sense, the experience of, of owning or somehow making that stream or that flow one's own. There's no longer any separation between the practice and uh, your, uh, your relationship to it. A story that I've always found very helpful that comes from the Kadampa school of Tibetan Buddhism, not the new Kadampa, the old Kadampa. Um, this is going back to the 11th century in Tibet. It concerns a man called Geshe Drom, who was a disciple of Atisha. And one day Geshe Drom was looking out from his window in the monastery courtyard, and he saw an old man um, walking around a stupa. And um, he goes up to this old guy, and he says, well, it's very good that you're walking around this stupa, but be much better to practice the Dharma. And he goes away. Next day, he looks out of his window and he sees the same old guy sitting uh, on the ground reading a Buddhist text. And so he goes up to him and says, it's very nice and wonderful thing to be reading this profound text. Much better, though, if you could practice the Dharma. Goes back to his room. Next day, he, he looks out of his window. He sees the old man sitting in meditation. And he goes up to him and says, fantastic, sitting in meditation. Much better, though, if you could practice the Dharma. <laughs> At which point the old man says, what do you mean? <laughs> Tell me, what does that mean? He's, and Drom says, to practice the Dharma means there is no separation between your own mind and what you're doing. In other words, you're not self-consciously performing some task. It's become your life. I think we find this very much in any kind of creative or artistic work. Uh, when you're writing, for example, sometimes I find that I'm having to force and strain myself. I'm terribly self-conscious. I want a particular effect, and it doesn't really work. And at other times, it sort of flows naturally. It just sort of pours out. And I don't have to sort of deliberately and self-consciously force myself to do it. And this, I think, is the, the point so often uh, in this practice, is to somehow create the conditions in which this natural flow begins to occur more and more.
Now, another way the Buddha describes this um, experience um, is in terms of the the practice becoming uh, autonomous. And this actually, this passage I'm going to read now actually covers a couple of points. Um, The Buddha is being asked by someone who's not part of his community about whether there are any lay people, not monks or nuns, who who have, have achieved the goals of his practice. And he says, there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, clothed in white, which means they're not wearing robes, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instructions, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, gained intrepidity or courage, and become independent of others in my teaching. Aparapachaya, not dependent on others in the teaching. And these are, you know, just people like you and me who um, wear white and all other kinds of weird colors, enjoy sensual pleasures. I particularly like that bit. And yet have become independent of others in the teaching. Um, In other words, the teaching has become their own. It's not something that therefore is the preserve of the uh, enlightened monk or nun who's spent years, years and years in monasteries and forest retreats and has cultivated all of these deep states of meditation and then finally has achieved the great goal, the first stage of stream entry. But here we have a passage that um, suggests that um, this experience is not that far removed from what um, we who live an ordinary life are capable of. What happens so often in religion and Buddhism, of course, has become a religion in spades in many ways, is that um, over time there opens up a gap between uh, those who are in authority and the, the, the lay people, the ordinary punter. And religion very often becomes a force of alienation. In other words, the monks, the lamas, the roshis, the ajans, they embody enlightenment and wisdom and compassion and so on. But you and me, the people on the street, you know, we're a long way away from any such great heights of spiritual achievement. And we see this in all religions, this, this, this tendency to split um, and open up this gulf between the enlightened priests and the unenlightened uh, lay folk. This was very much the critique of religion made by Marx, 
who based it actually on the critique of Feuerbach, um, if you want to look into that. But basically, Feuerbach and Marx's criticism of religion is that it serves as an institution of alienation and disempowerment. And it's usually coupled with political interests um, and the preserving of power by elites. And we've seen, unfortunately, that's usually the case. The religions very often become sponsored by uh, the state power. So here we have a very good counterexample of the fact that um, if we can give some credence to this text, that at the Buddha's time, uh, the Sangha was um, not just referring to monks and nuns at all, but to people from all walks of life. And I think we need somehow to recover that. And I don't think this is a dumbing down uh, at all. I don't think it's a sort of watering down of Buddhism, which is a, a, a typical sort of complaint that will come from the power structure. But actually, it's a re-owning, it's a reclaiming of what, in fact, is a possibility for all people in all walks of life. It doesn't depend upon your lifestyle or your commitment. And remember, it goes back very much to the... Um, image we had uh, of the middle way, which is a middle way between you know, insisting on religious observances and on the other side you know, just leading a life in pursuit of self-gratification. This middle path is one in which we're trying to avoid those two dead ends, those two extremes and I'd like to end uh, with an example which I think makes this point even more strongly and it concerns a man called Sarakani the Sakyan uh, who's a figure who only appears this one, in this one passage now on that occasion Sarakani the Sakyan had died and the Buddha had declared him to be a stream enterer Thereupon a number of Sakyans deplored this and they said, oh, wonderful, wonderful indeed. Now, who won't be a stream-enterer when the Buddha has said that Sarakani is a stream-enterer? <laughs> Sarakani, the Sakyan, was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drinks. So he was the local drunk. <laughs> so this was reported back to the Buddha. And the Buddha replied, If one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which is another definition of stream entry. It is of Sarakani, the Sakyan, that one could rightly say this. So this, I think, again, a passage that is very unlikely to have been in any monk's interest to add later. <laughs> and again, a passage that is conveniently hidden away on page 1811 <laughs> of another very big book. 
to me is suggestive that this is probably something that goes back to the Buddha's time. And um, I think this is, to me, this is a very powerful text. It's not, of course, you know, an encouragement to start becoming an alcoholic. But what it's pointing to is that even someone who conventionally would be considered a bit of a lost cause can still <coughs> be one whose life is on the path, who's actually a stream enterer, who's actually therefore part of the Sangha, someone whom one would, could take refuge in. It points really very much to how what constitutes this way of life is not adherence to a certain set of ideals, but rather the turning of one's life towards the realization of certain values, even if you are constantly failing in that task. So we'll continue on that note uh, tomorrow um, when I'd like to look at um, what constitutes the nature of the person or the self in Buddhism and what kind of society the Buddha seems to have envisaged. We'll leave it there for the time being. So now walking mindfully. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.